really glad we got to sing number 243 from the words on those pages here. That was a good one. <laughs> Romans, Romans chapter 1. We um, have been considering God's, God's offer of life, which is really why Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to uh, read to you verses uh, 8 to Romans 1. That's right. I'm going to start reading at verse 8. Pull you back into the context of his letter here. Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And this is the congregation of Christians in Rome at about 55 A.D. And Paul is telling them that he prays for them. He thanks God for them. Verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you, just as among the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. The references to Greeks and barbarians there is, is really so that you and I can contrast his, his mission against that of uh, Peter's gospel to the Jews. Peter would have been preaching to the Jews. Paul is a debtor. His mission, his work, he's been called to preach to to the Greeks and the barbarians. That that is one way of saying he's been called to preach to non-Jews, both the wise and unwise. And and the reference of wisdom there has to do with kind of the worldview of the Greeks. The Greeks were very big on on wisdom and, and, and logic. And so that's the meaning of these phrases here, the wise and the unwise Paul's mission is to these ones who are not Jews. Verse 15, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. The largest military power in the Rome whose capital, in, in the world whose capital is there in Rome. 16 says, I am not ashamed, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God of salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For the Jew first, because it began in Israel. It began in Jerusalem. It is first preached to the Jews. So for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we will be covering these verses here and a little bit more in our in our study this morning. Last week we determine that the offer of salvation and life is, is the reason that there is no reason for shame in the gospel. Paul's um, reference to shame is, is an emotion some people feel toward the gospel and toward Jesus Christ, but Paul says, I have no shame in sharing the gospel. Shame is a shallow threat to the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's power to salvation because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Revealing his righteousness from faith to faith 
is how he finishes that sentence there. And then he adds, the just will live by faith. And we kind of camped on that thought a little bit last week. The just will live life. The living of the just is is what is in mind as, as Paul says that phrase there. So generally we could say, that the life Paul is speaking about, and I, I, I made a typo. I wrote slavation instead of salvation when I was writing it down. Slavation. I put the L in, in front there, but I thought, you know what? That's a good word for salvation. Slavation. A slave of Jesus Christ. It's so great. The gospel is so great. Salvation is so great that Paul is actually honored to proclaim the gospel and to proclaim gospel righteousness. Now, just a second ago, we we finished reading there at verse 18. I'm going to pick up with you right now at uh, verse 18, and I'm going to keep reading with you just a little bit. So he had just said the just will live. The just. We could even say the righteous. The just will live. By faith. And then verse 18 said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That is, everything that is made understands this, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So what we are beginning to take into view from verse 18 is something that's contrasted with the fact that the just will live. The just will live. God's power. Righteousness revealed. The just will live, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed. And then as we follow along Paul's argument, and it's it's a very complicated string of argument. I'm just going to help you see it very, very briefly. Look at verse 18, begins with the word for. It's the first line of this argument. For the wrath of God is revealed. The just will live, and we could insert the word why. Why? For the wrath of God is revealed. Verse 19, because what may be known. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world. Verse 21, because although they knew, they did not glorify, etc. It's a long, long, complicated argument. But Paul is so happy. He's been given this office and this obligation And this privilege of explaining this revelation of God's righteousness. That the just would live by faith. I'm going to give you three definitions so that we can think more carefully about what he's explaining to us. Some key terms here, righteousness, faith, and life are words that have been brought out here for us. And I think you'll, you won't have much problem understanding these definitions, but righteousness and justification are legal terms. Righteousness and justification. They describe a soul's legal status before the divine and holy God. It's important that you keep in your mind that righteousness isn't in the economy of men's rules and regulations. 
The righteousness being discussed in the gospel is righteousness in relation to God and the court of the soul. So the soul must be right and the soul must be without error in a moral sense. Righteousness has a moral connotation to it when we're reading about righteousness here. Not in the realm of of men and the interaction of men. So one's status, a person's status, is either righteous or unrighteous before God. Or in other words, a man is either guilty because he's unrighteous or he is innocent because he is righteous before God. We could go on, but that'll get us started. I I said righteousness and justification are legal terms. Remember that when we're if we were looking at this in the original language, the two words righteousness and justification share the same root. In a sense, they're the same word. One's a noun and one's a verb. And so they're very, very closely related. And that's why I said righteousness and justice are these legal terms. Now, the word faith is a little bit challenging of a word to define. But if you would go to uh, Hebrews 11, there's just a classic definition or a classic explanation of faith here that you're probably all familiar with. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is... Remember Paul's service to the church as an apostle is to bring about the obedience of faith. Well, what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the substance of things hoped for. The Evidence of things not seen. Okay? So when we're speaking about biblical faith, why is it that you have hope in eternal life? Why is it you have hope in forgiveness of sin? What is the substance that makes up your own rationale for having this view and this confidence? This faith must be built on something. And so the definition of faith, it's a substance of things hoped for. Passages of Scripture, proclamations of Christ or the apostles, it's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. What what is the evidence of your confidence? Well, mine is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can I see it? No, I can't see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the resurrection is a strong reason for my hope and the veracity of the gospel and the claims of Christ. Faith is built on things that you're not going to be able to put your hands on, but it is a real thing. Now, faith dictates life and action. Faith in Hebrews 11, 7 to 8, look right down there a little bit further from where we're at. Look at what faith actually is. So up In verse 1, we we see a philosophical definition, almost a book definition of it. Verse 7 says, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now, what, what things was Noah looking at that compelled him to build an ark and then get in it with his family? It was propositions made to him from God. Faith was a declaration of eminent judgment that took over a hundred years to finally come to pass, right? So this is this is what faith actually does when somebody has faith. They act on the thing that has been declared to them from God. And we're going to read verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And it goes on for some number of lines here in Hebrews about Abraham and Abraham's faith. But we see that in these two cases, Noah and Abraham were given a a command or a revelation from God and they acted according to this thing that was given to them. Now, James makes some references to faith as well. In James 2, just turn your 
pages of your Bible, a couple of pages over, and you'll look at James chapter 2 and verse 17. James tells us another aspect of faith. Verse 17 of chapter 2 says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James gives you and I the advantage of knowing that there is such a thing as dead faith. And actually, if we were to skip the next line and read the verse uh, 19, look what else he says. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So James not only says that there is such a thing as dead faith, he also says there is such a thing as a a full-on accurate faith of who God is that is shared by the demons. Demon faith. There's such thing as demon. Are demons saved, you guys? Are there demons in heaven worshiping God in heaven? Do they believe that Jesus is the Son of God? They do. So we really want to be careful when we're talking and thinking about, you know, what is this faith? In Noah's case, in Abraham's case, it is a clear understanding and reverence of who is God and who am I in relation to him? I I am a servant of him. I, I obey him. I worship him. That's why demons aren't saved. Demons know all these things are true. It's, it's nothing more than just factual truths for them, but they don't love God. They don't worship God. We want to be aware of what James calls dead faith or this demon faith. Faith is evidence of things hoped for and the substance of things not seen in regards to who is God and who is the Savior and, and what is eternal life and how is salvation had. Finally, we're going to consider the word life just very briefly. Life, when the scripture talks about life, may very well simply only be biological life. Many times it just talks about someone who's alive or someone who is dead. But life is also speaking about the soul's eternal state. And life is contrasted with with death and judgment. So there is this eternal soulish uh, concept of life. For example, right in the context of what we're looking at in Romans, when it says the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, this life is eternal life. Eternal life is a gift of God and salvation. So when we're speaking about life and the offer of life, it is a promise given. It is a blessing offered by your faith in the death and the resurrection of Christ. If you believe in the Son, you will live. Is how... John explained it to us. So we will see these words. We will come in and out of these words and we'll probably work on them some more. But when we get into the big picture of what's happening in Romans, and this is all we're able to look at so far in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is God's power for salvation because God's righteousness is revealed And the implication is, and and what we're able to understand, is that the righteous will live. God offers life in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed here. This is another interesting thing to notice, because there's one other thing revealed. So righteousness is revealed, therefore life is revealed. If if we can find righteousness and if we can have righteousness, then life is, is revealed. There's one other thing revealed here that we see. If you look at uh, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What's revealed in verse 18? For the wrath of God is revealed. 
against. The wrath of God is revealed against, is what it actually says. There is a time when the wrath of God is poured out. Here, interestingly, it's only revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. There is a point in time when God's wrath will be actually seen being poured out. But if you'll notice, he says the wrath of God is revealed against, which alerts us, it, it, it shows us there is an opponent of wrath. Wrath is coming out against a thing in particular, a team, if you will, or a group, if you will. Gospel salvation and gospel life is for a group, and this wrath is against another group. And so what we're beginning to realize is that there is a work of God in the future. There's something taking place that divides men into two categories. Men will be seen and known and understood as those who receive the wrath of God or as those who receive life. We're learning about the justice of God, although it's not really mentioned in these terms. God's justice is good, and yet I think maybe some of you, some of us, would dread even seeing what the justice of God looks like. If the justice of God results in, let's say, the his wrath poured out against a million people, that might give us a really a sad or even a, a, a gruesome feeling. You wonder, how, how is this actually just? And yet maybe for the moment we have to just determine that his justice is good and particularly his justice is good for his people. One of the things you want to realize is that in the kingdom of heaven, his people are for the king and his people are for the kingdom. His people love the king and his people love the kingdom. And if there were a little army of 100,000 people in the kingdom who didn't love the king. What kind of kingdom would it be? What kind of place would it be to be a million Christians and 100,000 people who despised the king? We, we, we begin to understand that in, in order for true justice to be done, his, his people need to be identified and his enemies need to be identified and his power needs to be upheld and his justice needs to be upheld his rightness needs to be seen and understood and exalted many 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 will hate God for his justice at the end of the age but we will love his justice One of the things that Paul teaches us about this wrath that is revealed from heaven, if you look there at verse 18, he says it's revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And we could maybe insert the word why, to which Paul answers, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So where is this revelation coming from and what is Paul beginning to argue here? Where is the revelation of wrath coming from? It says it's coming from heaven. It's not written here in the Gospel of Romans per se. And so what I want to help you realize is that all men know of this revelation. Or in other words, look back in your Bible again. It's against ungodliness and unrighteousness. I inserted the word why at the end of verse 18, and the answer was because what may be known of God is manifest in them. What does that mean? 
What may be known of God may be manifest in them. It means the righteousness of God may be manifest in them. The godliness of God is manifest in them. The rightness of God is manifest in them. Therefore, the wrath of God is manifest. It's a direct revelation from God to all of his creation. All men know that the wrath of God is in store for those who, it goes on to say, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're going to have to take time in in the days to come to really go into depth and what that means. But by you upholding any truth that isn't God's truth, by you upholding any philosophy, any ideas that are not God's truth, you are by default holding away the real truth of God. So when men love evolution, for example, they're suppressing the truth of God's creation. God's creative work of creating the heavens and the earth in six days is the truth. Now, if I never say, oh, I don't believe in a six-day creation, if I never say that, but I occasionally say, oh, I believe in evolution, I believe in Darwin's teaching, I believe that men came from apes, etc., 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 I am repressing, I am suppressing what is true by never letting it come out, by never saying it, by never affirming it. That's one little tiny example of what's being said here. And what Paul is teaching us is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's just stated as a fact here at this point in Romans. The gospel is obscured by men's natural reason. I call it man's sinful wisdom here. Men have a certain light in terms of what is revealed to us here is that men suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. There are certain things about the nature of God that people know intuitively by their nature. But men change the light by which they want to see and understand these things. What do I mean by that? They want to see their own particular belief and their own particular philosophy as right. Men want to see themselves as acceptably Good, good enough. Men don't want to see themselves as bad. So we might even be clever and say, well, I'm excusably bad. Or in other words, I'm not that bad. And so when a man begins to tweak the light by which he understands himself, then all of a sudden God is going to give him a pass when he dies. Men begin to generate their own gospel, their own way of measuring themselves when they die. They think it's God's going to be good with me when I die. There's this natural revelation made to men that we read about in verse 19. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth for their own heart. Some see themselves that God is good and I'm not going to offend Him. I think that God's going to be happy with me. I think Jesus is a good teacher. Men can go through this life with many Ways of imagining what it's going to be like when they meet God at the end of the age. Some men think that God's righteousness 
is like a good man's righteousness. Think about this one for a second. A good man's righteousness ignores little offenses. A good man's righteousness overlooks a fault and is patient. So God's going to be like that toward me. God is like a good man. God is like my kind grandfather who was patient with me. What Paul will explain between here and almost the end of chapter 3 is that the gospel condemns all men who trust in their own versions of righteousness. Men is not allowed the privilege of, of writing his own and creating his own righteousness. And so, in other words, what Paul is saying is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. There is a very specific target in mind that God's wrath is revealed against. Ungodliness and unrighteousness are God's terms. They're they're understood by God's definitions. And this truth, this truth is a fear of many people. I think it's why some people drink. I think it's why some people drown themselves in different kinds of entertainment. I think it's why some people are busy pursuing their their, their riches and, and their business. Men seek any form of distraction they can so that they don't have to think about this too much. This fact that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Ezekiel 33, 13 Listen to this interesting verse about the wrath of God. Ezekiel 33:13. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered. But because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. Isn't that interesting? When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered. But because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. Paul has said the gospel is God's power unto salvation. Why? What is the answer to the question why? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is a key thing in the gospel, the righteousness of God. Ezekiel was basically showing us the hopelessness in your righteousness, in my righteousness. It is hopeless. You will die if you are relying on your righteousness. You will die if you are relying on your definition of God and on your definition of God's righteousness and what he's going to give a pass to and what he's not going to give a pass to. The gospel reveals God's righteousness so man might live because wrath is revealed from heaven against ungodliness. The gospel of God offers life because wrath is revealed from heaven. And so I would say that one of the things we see and and maybe clearly begin to see is that there are only two ways to live in this world. Two ways to live that we see Paul making some reference to here. Each path has a clear destination. There are two roads in this life. There's the road of of righteousness in God's righteousness and then there's the road of every other kind. The world is a place where men can see and where you guys make your... You guys weigh your views. You you weigh your philosophies. You you weigh your opinions about things. And if we learn to see the world with unrepentant sin, if if, if we go through this world 
ignoring the offer of righteousness from God, then we end up confronting wrath. But if we learn to see with eyes of faith, then we might live. There's only two kingdoms in this world. And one of the things that John talks about is at the end of this age, in the book of Revelation, I'm going to read a passage out of Revelation 14 in a second. When we get to the end of this age, there's going to be two groups of men and women in the world. And John says that the world's subjects, the people who love the world's kingdom, they will take a mark. He says there are these people who will show their allegiance to this kingdom at the end of this age with a mark. And their alliance will be for that kingdom. And they will also be against anybody who would say something against them. This helps us realize the truth in the fact that there are, there are, there are two kingdom paths in this world. So when we get to the closer to the end of the age, this, this other kingdom will be more and more distinct. This world will be more and more clearly for this kingdom that belongs to Satan and, and the world's philosophies and the world's ambitions. And so this mark that men will wear, and we don't really know what it is, but this mark will be the only way that men can participate in commerce, the only way men can participate in any uh, acceptable social interaction, and anybody who won't have the mark, anybody who won't give their allegiance to this kingdom will be ostracized. They will be publicly mocked. They will be uh, publicly mistreated. So on the end of the age sees this distinction growing more and more and more distinct. So here we are in Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11. Read with me about this, this division that is coming. It says, Then a third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now, the word beast there, I, I, I don't, you guys shouldn't be picturing necessarily like a big tiger or something like that. The, the, the word beast is, is what has been seen in the vision. It, it's represented by a, a creature, okay? But we, we are to understand that this, this is a, a symbol of the authority of, of, who, of who this allegiance is to. Who's in charge? Who's the boss, this, this beast, Okay? If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. As we get closer and closer to the end of the age, we see the people in the world being divided into one of two groups. One of the groups is going to be utterly committed to the authority of this system. And what we see here in John's revelation is what are they in line for? What are they going to run into? What is their end? Wrath. The smoke of their torment, it says in verse 11, ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image. This is the justice of God. The justice of God will take all of these who will not love him who will not worship him, and he will give them what they want, which is the, the fruits of their God's labors. He, he will give them what they are 
pursuing. The wrath of God is terrible. It's powerful and it is torment. And it is against any. It is against all who do not have his righteousness. So when we get back into Romans 16, 17, and 18, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith. As it is written, the just will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. He's laying out the argument in the front end of this book. God's judgment is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Therefore, the righteousness of God that is being revealed in the gospel must become yours. You must have the righteousness of God or you will face the wrath of God. John 3.36 John 3.36 Wonderful conversation between the Lord Jesus and Nicodemus. And John probably overheard this and that's why it's in his gospel like this. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life. How does the sentence end? But the wrath of God abides on him. Believing the Son is where a man comes to possess righteousness. If you don't have the righteousness of God, that means you have your own righteousness. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Therefore, it is the power of God and salvation. But for those who do not possess this righteousness of God, how does, how does verse uh, 3.36 end? The wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God is against all ungodliness. The end of the age the end of the age will divide men into these two categories the righteous and the unrighteous those who will go to life and those who will face the wrath of God in torment forever this letter is actually going to go into great detail here very helpful detail and, and I, I hope to I hope to do a good job of explaining what is explained to us between 18 and almost the end of chapter three. Ungodliness and unrighteousness are very clearly defined and, and explained where they came from. What is ungodliness? What is unrighteousness? The root of ungodliness comes from an instinct. You and I have an instinct. And ever since Adam and Eve, we could call this instinct a sin nature. Instinct of all men from the time of Adam and Eve is this sin nature. Look at verse 22. Romans 1, 22. Actually, we'll start in 21. Because although they knew God, and remember... God has made this known to them. God has shown this to men. They know it. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. This is a legal condemnation in Romans chapter 1 that goes on in great detail. There's a thing that's wrong with man. They knew God. But what was wrong with man? What, what did man do wrong? They wouldn't glorify him 
as God. And so what we end up reading between 18 and and almost the end of chapter 1 is man's first rejection, man's first departure from his interest in glorifying God, his unwillingness to thank God led to further and further and further falling into sinfulness, falling into less and less godliness, becoming more and more unrighteous. This is a condemnation of Scripture. And so as we think about this for a second, I wonder if you believe it. Faith in the book of Romans begins by asking you, what do you believe about the sinfulness of man? The the, the offer of salvation by the righteousness of God begins explaining to men why the wrath of God is coming against men. And then we, we should ask, well, which men? Which ones? And Romans 1 and 2 and 3 say all men, Jews and non-Jews. The wrath of God is coming against all men. Why? Because they would not glorify Him as God, nor give Him thanks. And then it goes on into greater and greater and greater detail of what this ungodliness and what this unrighteousness has produced. Men turned away from the only God and the only ruler and the only king. What is a great commandment? What is a great commandment? Love God. Does that seem like a strange commandment to you? To love the one who gives you daylight, the one who gives you air to breathe, one who gives you water to drink, one who gives you a mind to solve problems, who gives you pleasure in the smell of a flower or the ability to perceive the beauty of the night stars or to enjoy the friendship with your dear friends or your children. God is so kind to men, but what what this court charge asserts against men in the first lines of Romans is they didn't glorify him as God. They didn't say, wow, how did you make that? Why did you make that so nice? Why are you so generous with me when, when I don't think to thank you for it? Why are you good? The good news is that God has told you and I that there are these two worlds. There's this world of unrighteousness and there's this world where righteousness is available by faith in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is God who is born in the flesh and lived the perfection that you and I cannot live. We would not live. The Lord Jesus is righteous because he lived a perfectly righteous life. When you and I have a bad moment because your mouth is foul or because your mind is wandering into jealousy or covetousness or these little things, don't brush them off as things that are not significant or are not something that have you queued up for the wrath of God. These are examples of why men must face the wrath of God. Your little tiny covetous thoughts, your little tiny temptations to lie, your little lusts for another man or another woman who isn't your spouse. The ways you and I sin are are, are endless. This is unrighteousness. This is ungodliness. Where will we find righteousness? Where will we find the fireproof clothes to wear on the day of God's wrath? Where will you find it? The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is what men must 
long for and, and must praise God for, the righteousness of God, is what lines men up for life. The righteousness of God is what has become yours when you repent of the sin. When you agree with his condemnation and you put your ultimate and complete trust in Christ who paid men's penalty for sin. I can't do the gospel justice. The Lord Jesus took man's death penalty on the cross. And that death did not have to be used to pay for his sin. Do you understand why there is a credit on Christ's account when he is put to death for sin? Do you understand that? When the Lord Jesus is put to death for blasphemy, he has credit in his account. He paid a death he did not owe. All the sins of men are put on the Savior. And when he dies, he has none of his own sin. So what that means is that the righteousness, the goodness of Christ can be credited to a sinner. That's how you come to possess the righteousness of God in the gospel. 100% of the righteousness you need is in Christ. None of yours. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you so much for this letter and the comfort it gives to my own soul. Oh God, help me to understand it better. Help me to explain it better. Help these men and women to be grateful and thankful for the Lord Jesus. We thank you and praise you for the gospel, God. Oh God, I pray that you would help each one to be able to take hold of the righteousness of Christ. It is by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you guys may be excused and uh, have Bible study Wednesday morning. And then, right? Women's Bible study on Wednesday.